All right. Everybody can make their way in and find their seats. Great. Okay. If you do not have a Bible this morning and you need a Bible, please raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring you a Bible. Uh, Again, anybody in need of a Bible, raise your hand and our ushers will bring you a Bible. Everybody good? All right, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16. So before I uh, begin into the teaching, I wanted to uh, just say thank you all for your prayers. I think some of you were praying for me. I was sick while I was out. I went on vacation. Uh, I will not do that again. Uh, Vacation for me did not work out well. Uh, I got sick on vacation, which the irony of that. Um, uh, But um, thanks for all your prayers and sincerity. Thank you for all your prayers and everything. I also want to thank Ruben and um, Andrew uh, for stepping in. Ruben's one of our elders. He stepped in and taught for us last Sunday. And then Andrew, uh, many of you know, he's out in Halifax. And uh, the Lord's led him out to, uh, from our fellowship out there to plant a work um, out in Halifax. So please continue to pray for Andrew and for Halifax. I hear good things. I hear good things going on there. Um, but just, uh, just excited to be back with you. I don't know. It's just good to be back with the family. I don't know how else to say it. So with that, uh, I'd like to turn our attention to chapter 16. It's a, it's a very interesting chapter as you begin to study this and look at this in the book of Romans. Um, different than we read in Paul's other epistles and letters. There's about six things in specific that I'm going to point out to you, hopefully, here this morning. Uh, Some of you know that we're concluding in this book, and obviously 1 Corinthians will be the next book we go into. But as we look at this book, uh, many have tried, scholars and even uh, some from seminaries have come back and said, this chapter, we're not sure if it's really even Pauline. And I think if you use textual criticism and what have you, I I think it's a very stretch, a very severe stretch to even try to uh, apply that in any way because of not only just the grammar, but the amount of use of reference, even the fact that Paul... Uh, many times, you know, is Anastasis, is, you know, Anastasis is here writing for Paul, even saying, hey, I put this letter together. So it's, it's, it's a difficult stretch, but it is interesting because many try to end Romans at chapter 15, and they say, well, chapter 16 is simply a benediction. It's, it's simply a closing. But I would suggest to you this morning, if you've gone through the book of Romans in the past, and you've, you've come to that, and you've read 16 as though it was sort of just a closing— I'd like to ask you to just sort of take that and set it down for a moment. And let's be Bereans. Let's study the scriptures because God has a lot to say in this particular chapter. And what's interesting, as I mentioned, there are six things, two which are very unique to this epistle and this epistle only and Paul's writings compared to anywhere else in the New Testament scripture that Paul's written. So I'd like to go through a list of a, a few of them with you just so we're all kind of caught up on the six and then I'd like us to narrow in on the two because the two has everything to do with the purpose of his benediction, the purpose of his closing statements and what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to you and I very much today. And it's a very unique way he, in the way he did this. I'm not trying to speak in you know, abstracts. We're going to go into specifics, but it's very unique because he's going to warn against false teachers. He's going to, he's going to wrap this up, but he's going to do it in some generalities. He could have used specifics. He could have gone into legalism. He could have gone into Judaizers that were following him around and trying to unseat what the Holy Spirit had been doing through the churches he was planting, but he didn't do that. And it's very unique because Paul and other epistles, he calls it out. Right? In Corinthians, he is, he's not shy. He calls it right out. The Judaizers, that's Judaizing. Coming and trying to you know, heap a law onto someone that shouldn't have a law placed upon them, according to Acts chapter 15. 
So because of that, it's unique, and I think if it's unique like that, we need to pay attention to what is Paul trying to tell us. And he, he, he more or less is categorizing this, remember, to a group of believers he's never physically met. He's never been to Rome at this point. He's writing this letter from Corinth. He's been there a year and a half. It's on his second missionary journey. And he closes with this unique letter, this unique closing. So I'd suggest here that you'd write these things down. You pray about these things. You'd be Bereans. But I'd like to start with the first one. He entrusts to the Roman Christians a sister in the Lord. One of the few places we ever see Paul do this. Her name's Phoebe. We know nothing else about her in all of the New Testament. But he commends, right? That, that word is the word we use in the English, I entrust to you. It speaks of a benefactor. It, we'll talk more about that. But that's in verses 1 and 2. Second thing we see here in these, these uh, 27 verses, he, he urges the Roman Christians to, to greet various of their own flock. Interesting, isn't it? Greet your own flock. Greet these 26 folks, these two family churches, which, oh, by the way, they reside with you, but I happen to know them as well. Now, we see him do that sort of in Colossians, a couple of places, but he names a few, but not 26. This is a very exhaustive list. He certainly could not have done this at any other church. Ephesus, he was there three years, Corinth. The list would be the whole book. It'd be chapter upon chapter, right, if you had to list everybody's name out. But here it's unique that he does that. I don't think that's a coincidence. Please remember with me in chapter 15, where does Paul believe he's going? Paul believes he's on his way to Spain. And on his way to Spain, he's going to stop by Rome. And not only that, but he's already said in chapter 15, we know that where has he already set up his home church? As we've been reading in the book of Acts and even in Rome, where is he at this point, right? In his home church, his Eastern landing ground, Antioch. Antioch, right? The first church that we read about in the Bible. The first Christian church, if I can say it that way, Antioch. So clearly that's the the supposition that's going on. But he mentions that on his way to Spain, he too would like to set up a place in Rome. That that would be the place that he goes out to Spain and to all these other areas of Europe. And he's going to use that as a ministerial headquarters more on the Western Hemisphere for what he believes. Remember, it's not going to go according to Paul's plan, right? He, He will actually end up in Rome, but in prison. And not exactly the way he thought he was going to get there. And it's often how God works that in our lives where things happen and we, we kind of get some prophetic understanding or discernment, but vastly different than the way we, you know, the way we thought it was going to occur. And praise God for that because many of us would run the other way. Um, maybe I'm speaking individually here. But uh, so that's the second main, the main thing we see here is that, you know, he urges these folks, and I think it's because he said to them before that, you know, would they be his missionary benefactors? He's asked for that in chapter 15. So he's going to mention them by name. And I think there's a relationship. He's building, uh, you know, consensus or uniformity that way in his coming. The third thing, he sends greetings to the Roman Christians from others as well. Look at 16, verse 16. You might say B if it's the second half of the verse. Uh, verses 21 through 23. Number four, he warns the believers in Rome about a false teachers or false teachers. It's very interesting. You get to verse 17 and it's, it's almost like a, you know, I, I don't know how we'd say it today, subject change. I mean, that's what he kind of does right as he's going midstream. And then he just, he says, and how does he do that? By using the term brothers and sisters or brethren. He says, wait a minute, subject change. I want to bring you back to this. He assures the believers of their final spiritual victory. In verse 20, he goes back. We saw it in Genesis chapter three, when God 
was proclaiming the judgment on the earth and on humanity. What else happened? He did promise a victory blow there that what? Satan's head would be crushed under the foot or heel of Messiah, of Jesus, right? And we see that same thing here. It's also prophetic because in Revelation, we're going to read that same thing in chapter 20, verse 10, that it says that one day that Satan himself will be cast into the lake of fire. Prophetic. It's, it's prophecy. But, he, but if, if we don't know our Bibles, we wouldn't understand eschatologically that he's pulling this all together for us. He's showing this. So that's what I mean. There's a lot going on in this last chapter. It's not simply a, hey, goodbye. I hope to see you again. Right? He's got a lot going on here. The fifth thing, he assures the believers, or sorry, I just said that. That is the fifth thing, the spiritual victory. Uh, the sixth thing, he prays that the grace of the Lord Jesus might be with them. A blessing. He prays a blessing upon them. That they would be blessed, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be with them. And again, if, you, if you've read other Pauline epistles or his other letters, and I hope and pray you have, we'll be going into Corinthians next. Some of these are not... Uh, it's not, we wouldn't be odd for us to find combinations of these in the other epistles. Might three, four here, one here, two here. But we never see all six. We never see all six anywhere else. And again, I think that's unique. And if I'm being specific, there's two things we see in this one letter that we don't see in any one of Paul's other epistles as a closing. And I've sort of alluded to that in verses 3 through 15, which is this naming it. This naming all these guys, 26 of them to be specific. And then the other thing Nowhere else does Paul give such a stern warning against false teachers as we read in this chapter at the end to a church he's never been yet, to not even really aware maybe what's going on on the scene. He was warning them of what would be, and I believe it's very much for you and I today because he knew what would be through the Holy Spirit, and, and that's why I said he did, he did it in generalities. And again, many try to conclude this as a, simply just a benediction, but I think there's so much more here if we would just narrow in and see what God wants to show us and what he wants to do in our hearts today. With that, let's bow. Or we're going to pray, and then we're going to begin right in verse 1. Father, I ask that, Lord, you would, you would show us your word, that we would hear and learn and see all that you have for us this morning. God, we are hungry for truth. We are hungry for the power of your word. We are hungry, Lord, to receive all that you have for us. Lord Jesus, we know that there are just evil things being called good today and good being called evil. God, we need you today more than ever. Jesus, we need a revival. Lord, we need a revival in our church today. Not just this physical church, but the body of Christ Lord, there are wolves among sheep. There are so much going on. There are pastors that have walked away from teaching the word. There's just so much happening in the days we're living, Lord. It's, it's so fast-paced that we can barely keep up. Lord, we come in here today. We want to just submit and surrender, Lord, to your perfect plan and your perfect will. God, give us 2020 spiritual vision here this morning. Let us see what your spirit has to say. Prepare us for the days we're living that we are and will always be overcomers. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen, amen, amen. Verse one, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church of Centuria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints 
and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and myself also. Have you seen anything like this in Paul's previous writings where he specifically commends somebody? He's sent people before, you know, Philemon and different people like that. But have we ever seen something like this, right? He brings his attention to his readers you know, in Corinthians, we see it in 16, Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians chapter 4, 2 Timothy. But nothing like this, where he specifically names this woman who we don't see any other part of her name or anything else to do with her in all of the New Testament, all of the New Testament. But we're given in just two verses a whole lot about her, a whole lot about this woman, very special woman that the Holy Spirit wanted us to see, that we, he wanted us to take notice of. We have to be Bereans. What do we see? Her name is Phoebe. Again, nowhere else in the New Testament. She's a prominent member of her church in Caesarea, right? And she's obviously actively involved in the ministry because she's a servant. That word there is deaconos or diaconos. It means deacon. She's a deacon, which means 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 and on, apply to her in her service in the church. This is who Phoebe is. And who knows? Some have suggested that she's been the one that was to carry this letter to Rome. Why do we say that? Because Centuria, where is that? Biblically, let's kind of target Middle East for a minute. Let's narrow in. Where is Paul again? He's in Corinth, right? Second missionary journey. How long is he there? He's going to be there a year and a half, right? So he's in Corinth. Where is Centuria from there? It's about eight miles. It's eight miles away. So here he is. This isn't a woman that he doesn't know. This is a woman he's quite familiar with. Because eight miles away, she's been serving as a servant, as a disciple, in her church. Right? A faithful deacon. Paul's aware of her. Paul's sort of ministering in that area. Clearly, she's a summon of, I want to say, prominence. He, he brings her up in that she's faithful. But I believe he's also saying that she's coming to him. Or coming to them, sorry, in Rome. And I believe one of the reasons for that is that she is going to be entrusted with this letter. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with first century, the first century church or church history, but when letters were sent from churches to churches, they would be opened and read for the entire fellowship to hear and receive. So it was very commonplace. So she would care for this. This letter would be opened, and it would be read for, for all of us here to hear and what, what Paul was encouraging or exhorting or, you know, in this particular church, we're going to read in, in Corinth, a little bit of rebuking, a little bit of rebuking, but uh, what Paul's going through here, you know, he's, he's trying to exhort them. Now, letters of commendation were common in the ancient world. Why is that? I want, I want us to take ourselves back. Take, take us 2,000 years back for a minute. There was no Arby's. There's no Starbucks. There's no Denny's. There's no uh, Hotel Six, Motel Six, whatever they call themselves, right? Marriott, whatever <laughs> You, you have to remember, when, when women, I mean women, okay, men and or women, when women were going to travel, this is a perilous thing. This woman's a very brave woman in Christ. She was willing to travel this great distance to Rome, and not only did she be able to do that because of the leading of the Holy Spirit, but Paul was looking after her welfare, her safety. He, he, he turned around, and he says, you know what, I entrust her to you. And this is more than just, hey, when you see her, Say, hi, man, I heard you're from Calvary Chapel such and such. You know what I mean? What is he saying here? He's saying, take her in as your own. Why is this important? Because back then, again, there, is no, there was no way. There was no, like, middle of the road. Okay, I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to lay over there till here. You had to rely on people taking you in. 
You had to rely on people taking you in. And again, I want us to be really honest here. I hope we always are. If you saw someone on the street right now and uh, they were traveling, so there's going to be a little bit of, uh, you know, dirt. They're going to be traveling. quite a bit of a distance traveling. It's going to be, you know, sweaty, dirty a little bit. You have children. You have a wife, right? Husbands, wives, okay. And this person's going to come in your house and you know nothing about them. Now, Christ says we're to be the hands and feet. I, I won't lay any conviction there. I'm just simply saying we're to be hands and feet. But you see this situation, what is the first thing you're thinking? Is it safe, right? I mean, let's all be real and transparent. Is it safe? Is it safe for these folks, whoever it is, man, woman, whatever, to come into our home, right? Because you have children, you have other responsibilities. Okay, fine. Remember, very dangerous back then, right? Again, not like, you know, so what is this commendation? This is basically a way that as an individual, if I wanted to send someone from this church to another Calvary Chapel or someone like that, and I would write up a letter or an email, and I would say, I know this person, and you know this person. And it's through our commonality that there's a circle of trust that's established. Make sense? So as she's traveling, as she meets people along the way, she can pull out this paper from Paul that says, hey, I'm, I've got a character reference. I'm trusted. I'm known, and you can receive me and you know, there's no harm, no foul. Just think about that. That's what Paul, that's a pastor's heart. That's what an under-shepherd does. He loves, feeds, and protects. That's Paul's desire. His desire was to make sure Phoebe, as she's making this long journey, would have everything that she needed to be cared for financially, but also, you know, safety-wise. Again, this was not an, a, a simple undertaking. As I mentioned, Phoebe was a servant, you know, the diakonos or deaconos, you know, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, that a passage applies here. And what would it mean to be a benefactor when you think about that, you know? That idea, if you look in a lexicon or Greek lexicon, is the idea of caring for, to give aid to. But there's two things in this passage. Did you see that in verse 2? I see two things here. I don't just see one thing, that you may receive her in the Lord, manner worthy of the saints to assist her in what? Whatever business she has need of you. So something else is going on here. She has a need from this church in Rome. Some scholars have suggested, is it a legal matter that at the church or because they have a, maybe lawyers, something like that, that she was able to go and that they would help her with this legal? That's speculation. And if the Bible's silent, we should be silent too. We don't really know the exact, but she had a need and someone there in Rome was able to help with this ministry need, this need of some capacity in her personal life or what have you. Now, as we look at verse three, Paul goes through this, this oration of, hey, tell uh, Joey, Jimmy, Susie, Billy, Johnny, I said hi, right? You know, isn't that interesting? They're all in the church. It would be like, you know, somebody from outside saying, hey, can you tell all these people in the flock, you know, the 200 plus people in Tuesday, can you tell all these people here that I said hi? Well, that's Okay, Paul, that's a little strange, but all right. I mean, you don't do that in any of your other letters that way. What, what, I wonder what you're doing here. So just let that sort of ruminate in the back of your mind for a minute. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So we see a house church he's also greeting. Greet my beloved 
Now I'm going to mess these names up. I must have practiced this five or six times. It won't matter. I'm going to blow it, so forgive me already. Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Acacia, that's Asia, okay, to Christ. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampilius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanius, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of our Stubalifs. Why can't it be like Peter, Matt, Luke, John, Jimmy? I'm being lazy, right? Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcusius, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa who labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persisus, who labored much in the Lord. Rufus. I'm good with that one. Greet Rufus, man. Choose the chosen in the Lord. Why can't it be like Rufus 1 and Rufus 2? And, right? Chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Greet Asynocritus, Philigian, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philiogus and Julia. I'm good. I'm good with that. Nerus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them greet one another with a holy kiss. The church of Christ greets you. So, I mean, again, if you're keeping count here, right? Paul asked the Christians to whom he writes to greet each other with this holy kiss. It comprised 26 individuals, two families, and three house churches. If you really add up the list, that's what you'll see here. I'll say it again. 26 individuals, two families, and three house churches. Where else have you seen Paul do this, right? He does something similar, and you might be thinking in the back of your mind, you, you Bereans here, some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, Colossians 4.15, he does something similar like that. He greets a smaller group of lists. Yes, not 26, though, right? But had he been to Colossae? No. He hadn't been to Colossae either, right? Well, what about Timothy, you know, Priscilla and Aquila? 2 Timothy, right? Chapter 4, verse 19. Again, a minor list, but not like this. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Paul wanted to list every single Christian that he knew in Rome. Maybe he was like going through the list, you know, like, you know, I, I don't know. But I think it would be impractical if he tried to do this at any other church. If he tried to do this at Ephesus or Thessalonica or, or any of the other churches, hundreds and hundreds. I mean, we'd have, the, the, the Bible would be huge. I mean, it's already huge, but it would be really big. I mean, some of you have your study Bibles. You'd, you'd have to have a cart to carry it, you know. But I think it would be impossible or improbable for him to do that. I believe what he was doing here. Again, knowing in chapter 15 that he is planning to make his way back to Rome because he's going to Spain and he wants to make this a headquarters. And in 15, he sort of did a soft ask. Can I say it that way in our modern, uh, our modern uh, phrasing or, you know, uh, he said, when I come to you, that you would be able to help me as I make my way onto Spain. Missionary, would you support me? Basically is what I see. So in some ways, knowing that, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, missionaries, we need to support our missionaries. I understand that. But knowing this, it, it seems to me that maybe as he was making his way, that he remembered these folks that he would like to call upon, that they would pray maybe in expectation of his coming, that when he does arrive, that, you know, they would be able to be benefactors. They would be able to be helpers in this. Because remember, this is read out loud. So this letter would have been read much like we're reading it here. And I know we don't want to, you know, 
say this, but when our name is called, don't, don't we perk up a little bit? We kind of let, oh, what? You know, or, or sometime when the pastor starts going, and then all of a sudden, a little joke comes out. It's like, oh, huh, what? That was funny. What happened? You know, it's like, and they're back. You know, you don't want to know what I think of it. But the, you, get, you get what I'm saying? Like, I'm being real. I'm, I'm playing in stereo for you. I just turned mono off. I'm playing in stereo for you. But it, this is what happens, right? We're, we're, we're being honest with each other. We shouldn't pretend. We shouldn't play church. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this, I think having that name, hearing that might have perked up, oh, really? What's going on there? Oh, they need help. Oh, okay, Paul's coming. All right. You know, again, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, maybe he thought that would give him favor in some capacity. I, I don't know. I don't want to speculate here. Maybe these folks that were mentioned are reputation or influence in this church in Rome. I mean, after all, Priscilla and Aquila, right? Or Aquila and Priscilla very well known as a ministry family, a husband and a wife, missionaries, and very highly regarded in scripture, aren't they? So maybe these are people that also Paul turns around and he's calling out people that maybe as a reference to this church in Rome, those that are serving well or faithfully. So maybe that's the reason. Maybe it's, these are examples of those that were faithful that as they left their homes or their countries or wherever they are, that they went and they served faithfully. And maybe Paul's using them as an example for the eldership or the believers that are gathering in Rome to have a model of discipleship. I, I don't know, but, but it is unique and it is interesting here. Now, Paul mentioned, let's look at verse 3. Let's go through some of these names because we will see them and we've read about them before. Paul's mentioned Aquila and Priscilla, right? If you remember, they're a husband and wife missionary team. Do you remember where they're from? They're from Pontus. Remember that? Where is Pontus? Italy. Where is he writing to? Italy. Rome. Wait a minute. We just fast forwarded a whole lot here on the second missionary journey. What just happened as he's writing this letter from Corinth? Where was it? First, by the way, Acts chapter 18, verse 2, if you want to specifically read a little bit more about them in their initial calling. But he first met them on his second missionary journey after ministering some time. Paul dropped them where? Do you remember? He dropped them in Ephesus. He dropped Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. As we're studying the book of Acts, you may remember that. So he leaves them there for the work of the ministry. Now some time has gone on. He's writing this letter and he's mentioning Aquila and Priscilla again. But now they're not in Ephesus. Where are they? Back in Rome. But why weren't they in Rome to begin with? Do you remember why they left Rome to go to Corinth? Persecution. Do you remember Claudius? We read about it that specifically... Claudius had come against, um, he had offered, a, a, I guess I call it a degree, a decree of banishment that all Jews in that area had to leave. And that's why they found their way over in, you know, Corinth in that area where Paul met him. And remember they had tent making in common, leather, leather making in common like that. But then we read in history, extra biblically, when did Claudius die? He died in 54 AD. So any ban that would have been tied to Claudius about the Jew being in Rome or Italy like that would have been what? It would have lapsed. It would have been suspended. So what it appears to me, biblically or chronologically happened, is that they're serving in Ephesus. They can't go back to Italy, but obviously that's their home ministry or their place where God had originally called them to. But they, they had to flee because they were honoring the government and what have you at that time. And then what happens is Claudius dies. The decree that was, becomes banned, it's no longer an act. And what do they do? 
they return back to Italy. And that's where we find them. I don't know if you ever connected the dots before, but that's where they're back at. Now they're serving faithfully a beautiful ministry couple, a husband and a wife faithfully serving in ministry. I love it. Well, look at verse five, Epinetus, right? Nowhere else is he mentioned in the New Testament, but we learn a lot about this man. He calls him, Paul calls him the first fruits of Asia. That gives us a clue what's going on here, right? He was a convert in the Roman province of Asia. Now, I'm going to ask you again, what was the cultural center in the Romans province of Asia? Ephesus. Ephesus. So here we see this man that what Paul's recognizing, here's a man that got saved probably in Ephesus or somewhere near Ephesus, accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he now calls him and references him. And where is he now? Faithfully serving in Rome. Do you see why I think it may be the latter where these may be men of, and women of esteem, like Aquila or Priscilla, men of influence within their ministry, and God may be using them to say, hey, look, these are men and women that have taken their lives and surrendered and are serving Christ and, and, and you know, kind of lifting them up and saying, look, this could be an example for the eldership in Rome, right? I, I don't know for certain, but it, but it seems to build on it because as we study some of these folks, they're prominent men and women. And I do include women there because sometimes people say, well, see only men. No, no, that's not what we read here. We see men and women faithfully serving the church. And this is a beautiful thing. And married couples, we're also going to see children a part of this. Families, it's beautiful. So when people ask you, where's an example of the, you know, that? Well, I, I love to take them to this passage and say, this is a beautiful passage for that. <clears throat> Excuse me, Mary, look at verse six. It's a very common name. We don't, we don't know specifically who this is, which Mary this is. There's many. Verse 7, Androchinus and Junia, right? Two of Paul's fellow Jews. We know they're Jewish. Now, Androchinus is a, is a what kind of name? It's a Greek name. So what does that imply? If they're Jews and they're Greek, what do you think they are? Hellenistic Jews. That's, that's what we read between the lines here. Verse 8, Amphilius, who is believed to be a slave or a free man. So we see those that even, you might say, um, were in slavery or those that were bond servants, doulos in the Greek, okay, even serving along. I love this. Those of influence, those without influence, all things in Christ, right? No one's disqualified. Everyone's enabled to serve Jesus. It's beautiful. Verse 9, Urbanius, right? Again, probably a slave or freedman, but, you know, Paul seems to have known him, but only by reputation, not a close relationship like maybe Amphilius. Why do I say that? Because of the way he references it. He says, he's our fellow worker. Kind of implying, like, I know Pastor Matt. I, I go to the church. I hear him on the radio. But maybe I don't personally know him, you know? But I know him, but not, I know of him rep, of reputation, right, that way or, or what have you. We know nothing about Stiachus or Stiachus, right? What about verse 10, Apelles? We know nothing about him other than Paul gives him. What a great honor. He says he is approved in Christ, right? What's that describe? Well, that describes that in some capacity in his life, Paul has been able to witness that he has proven himself during a difficult test of faith or in some capacity, he's a respected believer, Again, drawing to the prominence of these men and women that are being listed here. Verse 11, Herodian, right? A freedman and a Jew in the service of 
one of the Herods. That should sound familiar to us. Herod the Great. The whole family of the Herods, they were wicked, right? The sons and everything that we read about it in the Gospels. He was a Herodian. That means he's of the family of Herod. What does that tell you and I here this morning? It's beautiful. How many of you have folks here that are not saved in your family? Do you have folks that aren't saved? Some of you? All right. Loved ones, neighbors, right? You may look upon them and say, can they be saved? Is there any hope for them? I mean, if you were living at the time of Christ and you watched what the Herods had done to Jesus at two years old, Herod the Great, and then also the Antipas and, you know, the whole family and what they had done, wouldn't you have, not, that, not you saints, but wouldn't other saints turned around and done what? Written them off maybe because of the family line? Oh, he's a Herod. He'll never, he'll never convert. He'll never receive Christ. Somebody loved that man enough to give him the love of Jesus Christ. And they didn't judge him because of what he looked like, because of what family he was from, because of his wealth or not wealth, because of his skin color. None of that mattered. He loved them right where he was, and he drew them to Jesus. That's real love. We need to have that, we need to have that stirring today. We don't, we, don't, we don't need to put God in a box and limit and, and somehow think that we are a judge to say, what can God do? What about prodigals? Anybody got prodigals in here? You know what that is? Those that are wayward in your family, loved ones that are not walking with Christ today, but you've raised in the spirit. Do you trust the word of God? Do you trust what it says that you're to pray that they will return, right? But they have to know where to return to. That means you stay the course. Think about that in the parable or the, or the idea of the, of the um, you know, the, the, the boy that comes back to the prodigal father. The boy had to know where to return, didn't he? He went out, he spent his fortune, he did all these things. But if the boy didn't know where to find dad or maybe mom, okay? But you know where he know to find him? At home, faithful, waiting, praying every day for that son to come home. Never, ever giving up. That's the biblical example we have of the prodigal. It's all of you that have prodigals in your lives. Don't you ever give up. Don't you ever give up praying for them. Don't you ever stop to think, well, maybe my mother, maybe my father, maybe my brother, maybe my sister can't come to Christ. How dare you? How dare you? No one knows what Jesus can do. My God can do anything. He took a Herod and he brought him into the family of Christ. Is anything too hard for our God? Verse 12. Trophina and Trophosa. If you look in the Greek, we can clearly find out these are what? These are freed women, right? These were slaves or freed women, right? Gender. I love gender. The Bible's not gender neutral. No matter how they try to change the laws of the land, the Bible is not gender neutral. There are pronouns, and they matter. This is the Greek. She's a freed woman. Tradition says that they may have been sisters. Persis. Also probably a slave or freed woman. She's a female. We come to verse 13. We get our boy Rufus. Think about Rufus for a minute. I love that guy. You know why I love him? Because he gives me hope for my family and my children. When I look at Rufus, do you know who he was? He was the son of Simon of Cyrene. Do you know who Simon of Cyrene was? He was the man that along the path of Golgotha as Jesus was being led and carrying the cross. When Jesus fell and was unable to pick up the cross, the centurion turned and looked to just someone in the crowd and tapped him on the shoulder by Roman providence and authority means you disobey this, it's your life. 
basically tapped him on the shoulder and says, you will carry this man's cross. Do you know why that was so difficult? Because at that time, if they had done that, remember, that centurion that might have been there that called him, there's others with them. Remember, on either side of the cross, there's others that are making this path up to Golgotha for crucifixion. What was his fear? That they were going to think he was one of the prisoners. That he was going to think that he was one of the criminals. And that he himself could end up on a cross. What about his wife? What about his two boys? He had two boys with him. Rufus being one of them. You don't think they were watching? You don't think they were worried about dad? Knowing that this could be a reality? I mean, after all, what did they do? They just came to Jerusalem for feast day, for, for you know, Passover. They were just being good Jewish boys in a family. They were coming back for Aliyah. I mean, they were coming back as, as the Jewish faith teaches them to. To only find themselves in a situation like that. Can you imagine? I mean, that's not part of the plan. You know, we all have plans. That's not part of the plan. You go on vacation only to find out that now you're put in, I mean, you're put in a situation like that. We just, you just never know what the Lord, but here's this father, Simon. He doesn't cower away from it. He picks up that cross and he carries it. I don't know how many steps till the rest he gets to Golgotha. It gets laid down. He sees this man beaten like nobody else has ever been beaten or scourged. The God-man, Jesus, for you and I. We put him on that cross, our sins. And he looks upon this man and he sees this man. He sees these two other thieves and neither one of them were beaten anywhere close to what Jesus was beaten, as we're told. In all of the accounts and extra biblical accounts and Josephus and everybody, how he was beaten like that. And here he is, he's, he's looking, and Simon looks upon this man and something happened in Simon's heart. He didn't get a great gospel preached to him like Peter in Acts chapter one and two where the sermon goes forward. Well, then what do we do? And they got saved and 3,000 or 5,000, 8,000 by the end of the week get saved and come into the church. It was because of one man's life, because the testimony of the life, because of Jesus Christ. And there was no denying it. Even the centurion eventually, we see even he, after piercing the side of Christ, he himself fell and began to believe because he knew there was something different with that God, man, that nothing and all the crucifixion, I mean, they were experts at this. This is what Rome did. Thousands and thousands of them. But there was something different that day. They knew. They knew. And, and somehow Simon, he sees this. And his boy Rufus is watching it. Is all unfolding before his eyes, and dad's there. And, and it, it, what do I do? It's my dad. You know why this gives me great hope? Because more is caught than taught. It means that I could turn around, I could teach, I could give the best sermons, I can do this, but if I don't live it, if I'm not living my life as a Christian, as a true disciple of Christ, and the converse of that, if I've fallen short, but I'm a born again believer now, maybe some of you had children, you were. You raised your children, but you weren't saved when you raised them. Or you weren't really walking with Christ. And, and you wondered, Lord, is there hope for them? I want you to think a little Rufus. Because Rufus was right there. Rufus watched dad. Rufus watched the commitment of his father. And because of that, Rufus got saved. And not only did he get saved, Rufus went into the ministry. And he ended up moving to Rome and leaving that whole area for Christ. You never know 
Don't ever think your life or what's going on in your life is insignificant. You never know who's watching and what they're watching. You could go to work and you could do the same thing day in and day out, not thinking you're making it, but something happens. There's a trial or a storm or something that goes on and you simply behave as Christ has called you to behave. Not because you're strong, because you're weak and on your knees you cry out to Jesus and they see the humility and the brokenness and the simplicity of that, and they turn around and go, that's different. That's original. That's unique. The baloney meters aren't going off. They turn around and they see this, and then what happens? I want some of that. I need some of that. And Rufus, his boy, gets saved and becomes, and now Rufus's kids, they're going to watch dad grow up. This is a great, you know how many PK kids? How many pastors? Their kids end up that's why this is a hope for me. Because no matter if I blow it, if I, my teaching's a certain way, if I can live for Jesus, if I'm dead to myself, if I can live to Jesus, I believe, even if my kids go wayward, they will come home. That's my only hope. All my kids are walking with Christ. Praise God right now. One's going off to college. We're going to find out where his faith is. We're going to find out what he believes. Because without the tests, you don't really know where you are. Don't hate the pop quizzes. We all hated pop quizzes in school, didn't we? You know, your stomach gets all anxious. You get the butterflies. Some of you, some of you just like, I don't care. You know, you just, I'll just draw on it, you know. But it's not, I mean, just, I'm not going to tell you which one I was. But uh, some people get nervous and... Uh, and, you know, they, they worry about the test, but I'll tell you what, you never, it's during those tests you find out who you are because of that self-examination. You find out more about yourself. You know, when you think you've conquered anger and you think you've conquered sin in certain ways and then something happens and you're a storm and you feel it come out or bubble, where'd that come from? I didn't know that was in there. You learn more about yourself during those moments. My pastor told me that. And I'm never going to forget it. I'm never going to forget it. Nobody's arrived. Don't hate the tests. You want to pass the tests. Because unlike James, you don't want to do it over and over again, right? Well, back to our, our passage here. So clearly, you know, Rufus is the man. Verse 14, we know nothing specifically about, you know, these Five folks here, Aristocitus, Philogen, Hermes, Paterbus, and Hermas. Verse 15, Philogus and Julia. Philogus was, you know, obviously with this feminine person, Julia. It suggests to most scholars that they were husband and wife. And because we see this connection in the Greek, the way it's written, Nurses, as his sister Olympus, describes to us what we would believe to be their children. This is a ministry family. So when you're looking for a ministry family, look at verse 15. When you're looking for a husband and wife, look at verse 3 and verse 15. But it's, it's, it's all through Scripture. Verse 16. Now Paul, and I love Paul, he adds this catch-all phrase, right? Greet one another. Just in case he forgot anybody, right? Just in case there was somebody, it should have been 27, you know, or 28. He just puts it in there, you know. And, and he says to greet him with a kiss. Now, some of you know at the fellowship here, we don't, we don't do that. We don't greet each other. You all, but we don't greet each other. Leadership, elders, pastors, don't greet anybody. We don't hug, right? Why? 
because we want to be a first Thessalonians. We want to begin. We want to be. Um, we're against the appearance of evil. We don't want any possibility, you know, of that to even erode the church. And no matter what we do, I assure you, there will always be accusations. There will always be things that will be brought. No matter what you do, because even when you say, "I, I don't want to hug a woman that way," right? Please don't any of you ever be offended. I love you all. I'm just not going to hug you, but I'm doing that for your protection and for mine so that we can stand before Christ blameless. And so that if there's a brother or sister in the flock that could stumble because of that, they're not stumbled. Beautiful, right? But for some of us, that's difficult, isn't it? I'm Italian, right? In my family growing up, we kissed everybody, right? Kissed them on the cheek. I kissed my dad on the cheek. My dad kissed me on the cheek on the way to school. This is what we did. Some of you don't have to be Italian. You're, you're adopted Italian. You did the same thing in your German family or whatever you were, right? You just, you just express your love. There's nothing wrong with that. At that time, very, very important. That was culturally norm. And specifically, if you were a Jew as well, very affectionate when it came time for a shalom, for peace, you would, in the first century like that, you would greet each other with a kiss. And it was always a kiss on the cheek, a, a brotherly or sisterly kiss. It was to be a, a kiss of affection. And he says, you're to do that. There's nothing inappropriate here. It's a kiss of peace. And that's what it meant. And, and if you think back to Jesus, what was he betrayed with? A kiss. It's interesting. Verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, not, or note those who cause division and offenses. Again, er, what just happened? Hang on. We just went through this list of names. You're just going, okay, we're closing. Things look like it's coming to the end. You all are like, yes, Pastor Matt's finally done. Um, no, but you were closing. And then all of a sudden he goes, wait a minute, brothers and sisters, hang on. This is very unique and very important that he did this because he's, I believe it was for you and I today. I believe it's very much for you and I today. He says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn." What's he saying? Contrary to the Bible, contrary to what you have learned, contrary to your discipleship, he says, watch them. And he says, I want you to do something. He's very clear here. And I know this is difficult. What's he say to do? You're to avoid them. For those who are such do not serve. He gives you two reasons here. He says, they don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ first, but their own belly with smooth words and flattering speech, deceiving the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Amen. And so what do we see here? Paul gives a warning, a promise, and a prayer. That's the three things we see in this one section. Some of you may have this broken out in your Bibles. Some of you may have it all in one section in your Bible. I break it out in mine because I see what the Holy Spirit's doing here. To me, is it's like three different sections in one section. The first one is, obviously, he's warning of false teachers, verses 17 through 19, right? You see that? The second one is he talks about this promise of deliverance that will come, and that's in verse 20, or it's come already, really. And then the prayer of grace that we see in really 20, verse 20, but latter half of that passage B. And it's interesting. Again, remember I mentioned in my introduction, Paul doesn't specifically name the, the, the pastor or the under-shepherd here or the heretic. He doesn't specifically do that. Why? Paul was not shy. Paul was not afraid to go, it's a Judaizer 
or it's this person, or it's Peter, or it's whoever, right? You know, Peter, why are you not eating? You're being hypocritical. How come all of a sudden when the church from Jerusalem comes to eat, you now won't sit with the Gentiles? Paul was not shy, okay, that way. He was respectful, but he wasn't shy. What do we see here? Well, first, I don't think he uses specifics because he'd rather categorize them. That way you and I today can use these same categorizations to be Bereans, to be on guard, to be watching for these things. Again, very much applicable today. He gives two reasons, as I mentioned already. He says that they're not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're serving their own belly, right? Gluttonous and greed come to mind here. That's, that's what I see. He uses the term belly in this idea. Yeah, and he says that they deceive the hearts, the unweary, you know, the unwitting, the, the simple, okay? Not ignorant, stupid, but simple. Now, if I ask you, and I hope you're all well taught in this because we've talked about it before, what is an under shepherd to do? What is a pastor to do? He's the lead, feed, and protect. That's what a pastor does. He's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Where do you get that? Ephesians chapter four. It's not a man's opinion. Men don't deserve an opinion on these subjects. What does the word of God say? That's what matters. God is the authoritative in this, in all things. So clearly what he's talking about is men that have, are doing things of their own guise or their own wisdom or their own reason, right? And it says that they, they deceive, but he says that false teachers is be careful because they can be clever. Do you see that, how he writes that there? They use smooth words or even convince using rational or logical um, arguments to individuals that may be pragmatic to do what? To lower their common sense, to, to almost get them not to use common sense or common logic. It's one of the traps or snares of the devil. It's what he does. He'll use things that are half-truths to appear righteous. Deuteronomy, Jesus went back three different times in Matthew chapter four when Satan came against him to tempt him. And every single time he went back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter eight to be specific. And what did he do as he went back? When he said, you know, Satan gave half a, half a law or half a truth, which is a full lie. What do you say? Well, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God, from the word of God, right? That's what he's saying here. That's what he's showing us. Being biblically illiterate is not acceptable. Being biblically illiterate, biblically illiterate means you're going into a war and you don't have your sword. Not smart. I don't advise anybody here to enlist in the military and then they give you weapons and you lay them down and say, you know what, I'm going to try this my way. It's not going to end well. It generally doesn't, right? They give you weapons for a reason. They train you as a soldier. Don't forget, you have training. You are soldiers of Christ. Don't you ever forget that. And you're in, a of a spirit, you're in the middle of a spiritual battle. I know we get caught up in our lives, and I know there's a lot of things going on, but to not think you have an enemy or to be ignorant to the enemy's tactics only puts you at a, a deficit, a weakness, because that means you're not actively engaged in the warfare. You're a pawn, or as we used to say, cannon fodder. I'm sorry if I'm being overly transparent about it. But that's the reality. My job is to prepare you for that. My job is to make you aware of that. My job is to point you to scripture. My calling is to do that. You to be Bereans, that's your walk with Christ. But I have a responsibility and a duty to make sure you understand the battle you're in and that I will stand before Christ one day and have to give an account for every one of you to be able to say, did I train them? Did I prepare them? Were they discipled? 
And if I failed mine, then I'm to hold the bloodshed on my head, doubly judged. But if I stand in the gap and I present the word of God faithfully, the consequences are between you and Jesus that way. That's all I can do. That's all any of us can do. And why do I say that? It's not just me as the under-shepherd. It's all of you. Men, your pastors of your homes. Young men. Your friends in high school and college and, and all these people that are around you. Your coworkers. God has put you in people's life to be invested in them. To be others-focused. Every one of you have a calling to minister. You're all ministers. You're a royal priesthood of peculiar people. Right? A special people, as the Bible says. We, we, we can't forget our, the truth here. So, I mean, I've seen this. I've seen my fair share of this in ministry. Um, you know, when people create division, it always is created in the heart first. It's like, well, verse 20. Some separate this verse while others see this again as a connection. I see this as really a cause and effect. If you're faithful to follow Christ, if you're faithful not to give in to these false teachers and their sly wives, in other words, if you're faithful to follow the Bible and you're faithful to do it this way, then you can trust what he says and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. You can trust that. It's a given. It's a promise. But if you are walking contrary to that and you're walking in your wisdom or some other wisdom or some other book or something else, is this promise available to you and I? if we're walking contrary to the scripture or the commandments of God, I'd ask you to answer that question in light of Israel and the 3,500 years of history that you have in your Old Testament Bible, in the book of Judges, and other books, that when they walked contrary to the word of God, how did that end for them? And again, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's a prophetic promise that Christians have victory over Satan over warfare, and it's by the word of God and the proclamation of the word of God. And we don't have to fear, and we don't have to be afraid. We stand in the gap with Jesus, with the word. You and Jesus is a multitude. Look at verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sophater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertus, he finally gets his name in there. This poor guy's been writing all 16 chapters as uh, an amniestasis, as Paul's been dictating this whole thing, and he's like, you know, Paul says, God, put your name in there. He says, I, Tertus, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole churches, greet you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greet you. Quartus, a brother, the grace of our Lord, uh, Jesus Christ, be with you all. Amen. Obviously, verse 21, pointing out to Timothy, right? Paul's son in the faith is closest ministry association. Remember, he was a native of Lystra in South Galatia. Timothy joined Paul at, his second, at the beginning of his second missionary journey, Acts chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. Lucius, um, some have tried to identify him. We don't know who he is. We really don't. Some have said he's Lucius of Cyrene, you know, from the Syrian Antioch church, Acts chapter 13, 1. Others think that he might be Luke, and that Lucius, like Matthew, Matt, Luke, Lucius, thinking that it could be a short name for it. Um, we're not sure. We, we don't know. Jason. We do know Jason. We know a lot about Jason. Remember Jason, Thessalonica? Jason, on the other hand, uh, he's, he's the one that had given hospitality during that tumultuous uh, stay in Thessalonica there when they wanted to stone him and kill him. Acts chapter 17, verse 5 through 9. So, Sopater is mostly likely um, Sopater of Berea, whom Luke tells us accompanied Paul when he left Greece 
towards the end of his third missionary journey, Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Paul tells us all three of these men were Jews. All three of these men were Jews. Verse 22, Tertius, we, we know nothing other than he's Paul's Zamius for the Roman, the book of Romans. Verse 23, Gaius, one of three, one of three in Scripture. We have three different, if you're taking notes, three different places. Gaius of Derby, right? That's Acts chapter 20, verse 4. He could be Gaius from Corinth. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. Or he could have been Gaius, the church leader in Asia Minor that we read in 3 John chapter 1. We just don't know which one. How about Erastus? Um, Paul sent him from Ephesus to Macedonia during the third missionary journey, Acts chapter 19, verses 21. And again, Cordus, he's not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. We don't know any more about him. And we conclude our letter here this morning with these three verses, this benediction. There was a lot in chapter 16, wasn't there? More than I think most meets the eye. A lot of meat on this bone. If we just take our time to go through it, line by line, verse by verse, every jot and tittle. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now been made manifest. And by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone, wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Just take this little last bit apart for a minute. I mean, what else do you do? Here's Paul. He's dictating this. You know, he's sitting there. He's writing to a church he doesn't, hasn't been to yet. And he's just spilling his heart and through the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and he says, now to him who's able. He makes sure and points it always back to Jesus. I love Paul for that. You know, with all the dangers facing those in Rome, every, you know, even in all the other churches, Paul concludes by entrusting them. Once again, he says, I commend or I entrust you. Then he, who else did he commend? Phoebe in the beginning of verse one, right? But I entrust you again. But who's he entrusting them? To him who is able to establish you. Who's able to establish you today or this morning? If you haven't been established. <laughs> Jesus, 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 right? Paul also knew that this is done according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That, that it's all done according to the word of God by the power of the word of God. That if you can persuade a man to believe, somebody else can persuade him to walk away. But when it's a true transformation of heart based on the word of God and the truths, the pearls and the nuggets found in the word of God, he is God and God's forever. And nothing will separate him from his hand as Jesus Christ promised. And he says, according to the revelation, this is important, of the mystery. Jesus talked about that mystery, didn't he? In the gospel. John said, prepare the way. For there comes one, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. It was all pointing back to this mystery. And now Paul brings it back in. What is this mystery? He's talking about the whole plan and the redemption through Jesus Christ. Through God announced much of this plan through prophecies. He's sort of given allude to some of this in Acts. The outworking wasn't evident until Jesus Christ came on the scene. The Old Testament prophets read about it. We even read how it was prophesied Messiah would come and be even rejected by the Jewish people. We read that, Zechariah and other passages. 
But now this glorious mystery has been revealed through the preaching of the gospel. And he says that he calls all nations to obedience. All nations to obedience to the faith. And then he does what any one man or any one woman here could do this morning. When you just had the entire gospel poured out, when you've literally had the entire book of Romans over eight months, line by line, one of the greatest theological letters written, treatise ever written, what's your response this morning? What was Paul's response? He could do only one thing. His eyes were on Jesus. He praised God and he began to glorify him. There's nothing else he could do. It's not, I mean, there was nothing else within his power to come to to do. It wasn't, let me go do all these works. It wasn't, let me go do all this. It was, I just want to praise God. That's what he wanted to do. Again, it could have been anything. He just wanted to praise God. To God alone, wise, be the glory through Jesus Christ forever. He focuses on Paul's wisdom. I mean, again, remember, he had just given revelation through the whole book things that Paul maybe didn't know or didn't understand. Paul even had battles in it in chapter 8 and chapter 7. He's like, why am I this wicked man? I do all these terrible things. I'm wrestling with myself and, you know, what's going on? He's looking at himself and finally he begins to look to God. And he says, to whom God can deliver me? All of this came, to ha- this is like going, th- and Paul has that moment here. He's done. He's undone. There's nothing more. There's nothing more you can take. Some of you are like, I can't either. There's nothing more you can take. You know, we're at an hour or a little less and we still have communion. Some of you are like, man, alive. But it's good to revel in the mysteries of God. It's good to rest in these things. It's good to think about these things and meditate on these. After all, this is your life and your walk with Christ. What will you do with it? One day you will have to give an account. One day you will stand before Jesus and you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. Isn't that what you want to hear? You want to know these things that they needs be, sorry, King James. You want to know that these things are true. I'm quoting King James. Needs be true, as it would say. That these things have to be true. You need truth. Well, I need truth today. There's nothing else like this. The word of God, holy, perfect, a God who's wise through Jesus Christ alone. And Paul makes sure everybody knows it's forever and ever and ever. Amen. Lord, we can do nothing but glorify you right now. We thank you, Jesus Christ, and we pray all this in your beloved and beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.